And just like that, we're back. Late Kick Extra Thursday morning, July 1st. The year of our Lord, 2021. They said we couldn't make it to July, you and I, and yet here we are. Uh, Who are they? By the way, you may ask, who are they? Who are the people who said that? I don't know. It's not important. I see people do this all the time. They said I couldn't do this. They said I couldn't do that. Well, no, they didn't actually. No one said that, sir or ma'am. But you know what? Since we're in the business now of making up haters, we'll just make them up for our show as well. Hashtag late kick haters out there. We made it to July. Could we make it to August? Opening bids start at plus 250, and we'll see which way the action goes. We got a loaded mailbag this morning. I know a lot of you are going to be on the road this weekend. I will be too. I'm headed back down to Georgia tonight, actually, after we do Late Kick Live. So it's a busy day. We got NIL breaking. The NIL era is upon us. We got the transfer portal closing. So you hopefully, like the Titanic in the boiler room, hopefully you got through it before the watertight doors shut, or else you may be not eligible this fall. Probably one of the most striking metaphors I've used in months, the transfer portal and the Titanic. So we've got a loaded mailbag. I thank you so much for contributing. I got so much overflow from the other day that I really got to talk faster. As you can already see, I've gotten into the habit of in the first minute to minute and a half of this morning's podcast, but I just got a lot to cram in and I don't want to leave any on the table because once we come back after July 4th, who knows, half of it may be irrelevant. So if you want to submit questions for next week, joshpate706 at gmail.com. About to head over some milestones on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure you're following there. Don't say I didn't warn you. When you start getting left out on what's coming on those platforms, don't say I didn't warn you. At Late Kick Josh. I'll still let you in if you're late, though. At Late Kick Josh. And uh, that is how you submit questions many of you have. So I'm going to start with one that I had a screenshot on the iJosh. I just saw it a little while ago. This is from David. David leads us off with this. I have often said that I, as a Georgia fan, will only ever pull for another SEC team to win off of the sole fact that they're an SEC team, if it's the Outback Bowl. So I can get a free blooming Onion and Outback because of their win. Would you defend this statement? Why do you think SEC fans think they have to root for other SEC teams? Interesting question here. I've heard very, very wide ranges of opinions on this. No one's neutral on it. Everyone says it's either stupid to chant SEC or they can't hear you because they're busy chanting SEC. What it really comes down to is you need to have grown up in the South to understand it. Now, that doesn't mean if you grew up in the South, you automatically feel this way. But if someone is listening in Gary, Indiana, you don't really get what it's like to live in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, or Muscle Shoals, as they call it, in Alabama. And it's different. Uh, Football is what we have always done best in the South. Now, that's an old talking point. Everyone knows that. You have eyeballs, so you can see that the SEC is really good at football. But there is one geographical region in our country that has been pretty underrepresented. We've always felt that it was underrepresented. We were underrepresented in media and academia. So because media and academia largely shape the narrative of what we think about things in any society. And so in the South, you were always taught growing up, especially by the older generation, you were taught they look down on you. They think you're an idiot. They think you're a hick. They think you can't walk and chew gum at the same time. But we got football. And so they don't laugh when they come on the football field with us. Now we get into a debate setting or we go to a spelling bee. Then they think they got the edge on you, but not on a football field. And it largely has rung true throughout my generation because the SEC, that's the area I grew up in. It's always been good. I've always been good because as we know, it just means more. Uh, I'm going to sidetrack. I'm going to get back to the it just means more marketing slogan in a second. I think it's brilliant. I think it's on the level of Central Florida hanging a championship banner in 2017. That level of brilliance. But anyway, here's what it comes down to. All right, now what's happening in the South is all of you are moving here. That's what's happening. So for a long time, 
all the talking point when you go meet each other at Cracker Barrel after church on Sunday or you're hanging out on the lake on Saturday afternoon in the summer. The, the running joke in the South has always been when you hear a Northerner making fun of the South, just laugh along with them because the joke's on them. Because we live in the South, like we understand vast majorities of the stereotypes are dispelled as soon as you walk out your door in the morning. So a lot of it's never been true, but also it's great to live in the South. The weather's great. The tax structure's great. The people are great. The the topography is great. I had to get my graphies in order. The topography is great. It's a beautiful area of the country. And so... Now, a lot of you are coming down here. I live in Nashville. I was in Columbus, so I've been kind of in the Atlanta area, the Nashville area. And everybody who comes down here ends up saying the same thing. I had a kid the other day who is new to this area who told me, dude, the South's been nothing like I heard it would be. And I hesitated to ask. Then I said, really, what did you hear it would be? And essentially, I mean, he thought it was going to be 1865 down here. And so it's not. And there you go. All's well that ends well. But what happens right now is you get that SEC chant because a lot of people are puffing their chest out and they're saying, you know, this is the first time we've been able to say, see, we told you so to a lot of you because instead of having to yell it from five states away, we're yelling it across the street because a lot of you are down here, but you're transplants. You're just transplants. Some would use harsher terminology. But anyway, I've gone on a little tangent there, but it really circles back to having pride in something as a collective region instead of letting it cut off at state boundaries. It's one of those family dynamics. Families fight amongst themselves, but yet when someone outside tries to attack a family member, then you all band together. That's kind of the way that Southern football culture has always been. Now, as I go back to what I said I was going to talk about, this whole marketing slogan that the SEC League office and their marketing arm has gone with, it just means more with the girl standing on the beach, just means more. That's so brilliant because what they knew is everyone outside the South was going to make fun of that. Some folks in the South were going to make fun of it, and they didn't care. It's just like when Central Florida won a national championship, according to them, in 2017. So many of you got bent out of shape by that. And there you go. You care. You got triggered. It worked. That's marketing, people. And so in the Southeastern Conference, they said, We fully believe this. It just does mean more. Just like at Central Florida, they really do believe that they earned the right to hang that national championship banner. But there is also a sly grin. It's like the sly grin emoji when they hang that banner up or when they run that advertising campaign. It just means more. 2017 UCF national champion. And then they just look at you and wait for your reaction. And a lot of you guys deliver every time. You shouldn't, tisk tisk tisk, but you do. So uh, expect that. I think they uh, it's safe to say they will continue running that ad campaign. Uh, Mississippi State has just won a national title in the time that I've been recording this. So things are going well in the SEC. Next up, scroll down. Let's go to this. Andrew asked a great question uh, that I probably shouldn't answer, but I will. Andrew said, what has been your biggest diva moment since getting to cover sports? I pride myself on avoiding these, Andrew. Really do pride myself. You know my background. You guys who have listened to the show, you know my background. I, I'm a lot more familiar with the sight of dirt under the fingernails than well-manicured fingernails. On me, at least. Now, you guys live how you want to live. But I say all that to say I don't have a whole lot of diva in me. But there was one time. It was two years ago. So I've been in the industry a little while by that point. And it was a year where, who played? Oh, that was LSU and Clemson. So LSU Clemson are playing in the title game. So I'm already, I'm going to be booked to go to that game. I'm going to cover the national championship. But before that, I said, you know, Alabama and Michigan are playing. 
and they don't play very often. And they're playing in the Verbo Citrus Bowl. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go down there. And I took a buddy of mine who's a lifelong Michigan fan, also a big fan of the podcast, so he'll hear this at some point. And I said, you know what? I can get us credentials, and I don't really care if anyone finds out because I'm about to leave this place anyway, so let's go. And so off we go to Orlando. And I am expecting, now that I've been going to bowl games a few years, for just an immaculate swag package. That's the stuff they give you for free if you're a member of the media, which, full disclosure, they over-deliver on. I mean, I got a sweet backpack from the 2018 title game out in Santa Clara that I still use every day, every single day of my life since that title game. I have used this backpack. It's my gym backpack. So thank you guys for that. Anyway, we get down there and we go to the media hotel. Great taco bar. I mean, an exquisite taco bar a night before at the media suite. But when we got to the stadium, the only media gift was a commemorative pen and just I had a moment, Andrew, I'm sad to say, and I regret it now, but I had a moment where for the first time I looked at free stuff that I don't deserve to begin with. And I said, that's it. And then I felt like going into a bathroom and slapping myself in the face. And so I got it together pretty quick, enjoyed myself. Great time. It was, it was wonderful to get a sunburn on new year's day. And that's the catch. If I were running PR for the citrus bowl and JP comes up and complains about the lack of a better media gift, I'd say, look around you, fool. You are in 75 degree weather on New Year's Day. There are palm trees within eyeshot of where you're standing right now. Oh, and by the way, you're getting to cover a game for free that people are paying to watch. Your airfare, your travel, any way you got here, it got paid for. So shut up and enjoy it here. Have an orange juice. Just don't drink it on the field. They did not let you drink liquids on the field, even though they did not have a problem with the Gatorade being poured on the field after the game. But Andrew, yes, I had that moment, but I have largely rehabbed myself from that. I have detoxed from that. So no more diva moments for me anytime soon. Michael is next up. What are your thoughts on the momentum Shane Beamer and the Gamecocks have picked up this week for Michael? I think it's a really good sign. I think it's a good sign because even though they're not necessarily beating the mega powers for these players, I listened to our buddy J.C. Sherbert talk about this the other day. You cannot do this apples-to-apples comparison. You cannot compare a head coach at a struggling program in year one versus a coach that is steamrolling his way ahead in year seven or eight. So in other words, if you were to do the Shane Beamer and Dabo Swinney comparison, it's stupid to do that. So I'm not doing that. What I'm doing is measuring him based on what average expectation would be for someone in his position. And Shane Beamer is exceeding expectation right now. They're doing a very good job of selling the proper vision. They're doing a good job of getting kids to buy in. The reason you always speak this time of year with some hesitancy in your voice is because you know there's not pen on paper anywhere. So you don't know. You expect all these guys to stick, but we've seen how recruiting plays out. So we don't know how it's going to turn out. If it turns out anywhere close to the way it's felt so far, How do you not consider this a massive win for South Carolina? And how does that coaching staff not go home at night, look in the mirror and say, good, we took a much bigger first step than we even thought. We almost pulled a groin. We took such a first big step in this process. That's what it's about. It's about process. It's not about the end of the line after this cycle. It's about what does this cycle do for the next cycle? What does the kid in the 2023 or 2024 class think looking at all these kids ahead of him buying into South Carolina, even though there is no result to show for it yet? I think it's a really good thing, uh, Michael. And I'm pulling for him uh, because, you know, if you guys listen to the pod, I'm a huge fan and really pull for programs who hire culture fits. It's the same reason I'm pulling really hard for Sam Pittman at Arkansas. 
really good culture fits because I think that's unique to college football. That's not the way it is in the NFL. The coach for the Bears and the coach for the Dolphins and the coach for the Chargers, it's just all the same. They're different markets, but it's all the same philosophy. It's different here, totally different. Coaching at UCLA and coaching at South Carolina are two totally different worlds, and that's good. That's not a bad thing. That's fine. That's college sports. It doesn't have to just be this even landscape. There can be some hilly terrain. You know, there can be a valley over here. There can be a peak over there. There can be this really, really cool waterfall over here. And then up there, look, it looks like the great fruited plain as far as the eye can see. It's supposed to feel different. That's the uniqueness of college sports. That's why it's so fun to go on road trips. You get to see different people, different landscape, different culture, different stadium, different game day experience. All that ties in here. And so Carolina and Shane Beamer, they're packaging what South Carolina football should be. And if you're getting kids to buy into it that early, before they've even coached a game there, more power to them. Nick is next up. I think we need to take just a second here and we need to collect our thoughts because Nick asked one of the more pressing questions of our time. And a lot of you have already been in this situation. Some of you, I found out, had horror stories. And some of you are really speculative and you're wondering, should I pursue this? So Nick asked the question, I'm going to go ahead and put it out there, and then we're going to do the ad break, because you're going to need the ad break. Now, of course, we want you to patronize our sponsors, but you're going to need the ad break to think about your own answer. So listen to this question, and we'll answer it on the other side. According to Nick, he wants to know, when you're getting to know someone, is it a good idea or a bad idea to ask her out on a date to a college football game? Have you ever done this? And if so, how did it turn out? And we will answer right after this. And with that, we're back. As you remember, when we last spoke, well, about a minute, minute and a half ago, Nick wove us a very fascinating web. Are we taking girls to college football games for first or second dates? Are we going to do it? I know some of you do. Some of you have had great results with this. But I put this on Twitter the other day, and I think it's a skill to get 50-50 split on a question. I could ask, what's the better color, red or blue, purple or green? I could not get 50-50 split. Heads or tails, I could not get 50-50 split. But I asked you guys the other night this. I just copied and pasted it. In fact, let me pull my Twitter account up. So I copied and pasted this the other night. Again, to reiterate on the question, do we really want to explore taking girls to college football games as first or second dates early on? We're not talking about taking your long-term girlfriend, your fiance, your wife. We're talking about taking a very, very new relationship into a college football setting. Some of you said yes. Some of you said no. In fact, how split was it? As of the time of this recording, it is 51-49. say it's a good idea. say it's a bad idea. Uh, Jacob Carnes, one of our buddies, hopped in the comments and gave the following quote. Don't involve a girl that you have emotions for with a sport that you have emotions for, at least not early on. I thought that was profound. A lot of you did too. Here's my take on this, Nick. I think there is some upside. I think there's infinitely more downside. I could think of four or five things that could go right. I could think of 40 or 50 things that could go wrong. My personal take on this is I would not risk it early on. But again, it's personality by personality. Some of you are maniacs at games. Some of you are your normal self at games. You can define what normal is for you. But think about all the other variables that come into the equation when you enter a college football stadium and go into that environment. Think about all the things out of your control that could happen that could impact you and your girlfriend. And If you've ever been in a stadium, you know exactly what I'm talking about here. And then also think about 
what kind of emotion that maybe you've had bottled up that you haven't seen or she hasn't seen that all of a sudden is on display. And it's hard when you find something new out about someone and you're in a crowd of 90,000 people, it can just create this really awkward dynamic. Now, here's another thing that's happened to me in the past, and I'm not going to go too far into detail with this uh, because uh, you know a lot of a lot of concerned parties may be listening to this. But I will say, I've had a somewhat similar situation, only I cover games, so I wasn't at games. But sometimes when you want to focus on something, and maybe someone else doesn't want that focus on a game nearly as much as themselves, it can also create a little bit of a dilemma. So let's just say you are a sophomore at Michigan, and here comes Ohio State into town. And you know what? I think this is a great time to take this girl I've been dating for three or four weeks. I really like her. I really think this could be it. So I'm going to take her to the game, Michigan-Ohio State. And this is in 2046. Michigan has a shot to beat Ohio State by this point. And my goodness, it's happening. We lead 20 to 10 at the half. It's 33 to 20 to begin the fourth quarter. We just turned them over on downs. It's 38 to 27. We're going to beat Ohio State. And you are wrapped up in it. And she's mad because you're not paying her enough attention. And it creates a very uncomfortable dynamic. And here's the thing. College football is about moments. And if someone ruins a moment... It's forever linked to that moment. Your bad experience is forever linked to that moment. Like if you're making a fool out of yourself and you get arrested at a game for being public intoxicated and you get taken to the pokey and you don't even get to see the ending of that game, everyone else 30 years from now is going to be talking about the day Michigan beat Ohio State. And you're going to be talking about a cellmate named Pedro and you didn't even get to see the end of the game. Well, it's the same way. Memory framework. It's very fascinating. If you haven't studied it, you associate a certain thing, a certain point of your life with a certain occurrence in life. And what if that memory framework works in such a way where you have waited your whole life to celebrate Michigan beating Ohio State and it's in the process of happening and you're miserable because there is a voice six inches from your ear chewing you out and berating you because you paid more attention to these kids you don't even know over me this whole afternoon. I'm not saying it would happen that way. I'm just saying it could happen and has happened before. Now, on the plus side, you could find out that this girl is worth her weight in gold and platinum combined because she's into it every bit the same as you are. And she can name the starting left guard and the backup. And at that point, you've entered unicorn territory. And so you just want to do everything you can to never let her out of your sight again. So yes, things can go right. But things can go so horribly, tragically, fireball tumbling out of control down a steep ravine bad that I personally would weigh the risk over the reward, and I wouldn't do it. But if you do, I'm excited to hear the feedback. You're going to have a lot of opportunities, hopefully, this fall. Nick and anyone else asking. David's up next. Got a very good question here. Here's a question for the podcast that genuinely baffles me. There's probably a perfectly good answer, so feel free to make me look silly if necessary. But with all the technology we have in sports these days, why in the world are we still eyeballing where to spot a football? At times, the decision appears totally arbitrary, which is mind-blowing considering the importance of the spot and what it can do for a game. I have no answer. I have no answer. I, I cannot believe we put a man on the moon in 1969 and we are still using eyeballs to spot a football. We have not put technology in the form of chips, several of them, in footballs, and we have not run corresponding digital strips along football fields or put laser technology in the sticks themselves on the sideline to shoot across the field and create imaginary lines. 
to spot a football accurately. I can't believe that. It seems like if we were back in caveman times and we were going to chart out the course of the future, what feels like it should have come first? An absolute way to measure the spot of a football or putting a man on the moon? Like, I don't know that we think about it this way sometimes. I, I can be in a football stadium and I can look up above me and see a commercial airliner flying innocently over the stadium 40,000 feet in the air. And I'm thinking to myself, that big metal tube is floating with 250 people on it, 40,000 feet above my head, several miles above the earth. We have long since figured out how to do that. And we're standing here with a stoppage in play as two guys run out onto the field with two sticks connected by a chain. And then a third guy has his hand around the chain, marking where the spot of the ball allegedly was. It fascinates me. We get down to the goal line. So many times you're counting on instant replay. And so you'll call a guy short and you'll go, oh, let's go to the replay. Let's see if he made it in. Well, you're not going to be able to tell. And I'm going to tell you why. Because there are 37 bodies piled on top of each other. And you can't tell. I'm not telling you laser technology or chip technology could absolutely, without question, tell you if he crossed the goal line before he was down. But it could absolutely tell you if he crossed the goal line. And I cannot believe that we have not done that. I also watch Major League Baseball. And I'm a, I'm a traditionalist, uh, to be frank with you. And so I love the human element in baseball. But now that you've taken all of it out and you've totally rearranged the sport, I mean, double headers are now seven inning games. When the what are we talking about? But since you've done all that, why are we still using humans as umpires? You've long since had the capability to call balls and strikes robotically. And in football, I don't think it hurts the game one bit to add that technology in there. So, David, I don't have an answer for you. The question is not silly. It's silly that you have to ask the question. I also hate that word, silly. I hate it. It's one that just never sounds right to me. I don't use it. Don't use it in the vernacular, except when David asked a question there. So let's move on here. I I don't have an answer for you, David, and I doubt anyone else in the listening audience does. It's one of those. It's one of those universally agreed upon points that for some reason doesn't get corrected. I've never had anyone say, "No, nah, that's that's a bad idea." There, no. We want to keep the human element involved here. We, we want to be three quarters of a yard off because some referee's eyeball lied to him. I don't ever hear people say that. But yet, still, here we are in 2021. Let me stress again, we are in 2021. Grant had a question about the 10 best college football programs in the last decade. And he listed his 10. He wanted to know what I thought about it. So quickly, he went Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, Oklahoma, LSU, Georgia, Boise State, Notre Dame, Wisconsin, and Florida. I would not have Boise State in my top 10, uh, but that is only because it's relative to accomplishment, which is also relative to challenge. So this is not a knock on Boise. If you were just doing straight up blind resume, wins, losses, win percentage, yada, 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 yes, Boise is in the top 10. I'm talking about playing a higher level of football. So Boise wouldn't be in my top 10, but it's not because anything personal against them. I've explained this before. I would have Wisconsin a little bit higher than nine. I believe, Grant, in the question you sent me, you also said you were arguing for Wisconsin to be in the top 10. I don't see how they're not in the top 10. How, how would anyone not have Wisconsin in their top 10? That's been one of the most steady-as-you-go programs that doesn't get a lot of the national spotlight because there has not been a playoff run and they, there hasn't been a national title. So that's what people remember. That, that's why so many people would put LSU ahead of Georgia. Georgia's had more consistency. LSU's won the title. 
And I get that. I have not a huge problem with that. But with Wisconsin, yeah, absolutely. I would put them in there. Otherwise, I think the list is okay here. I'd, I'd put Clemson over Ohio State. I would do that. Uh, but other than that, list looks good to me, Grant. Next up is Sam. And he thought about this one. You can tell because this thing's several lines long. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But he asked, essentially, why do you wear a white t-shirt every show? Would you consider wearing anything else? Do you own more than one shirt? Is there an attachment to the white t-shirt? And is that the reason Late Kick merch is still on the back burner? Let me answer this in reverse order. Late Kick merchandise. Haven't mentioned anything about that. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, which I always give to you guys, I cannot do that right now. It's not because of me. It is because of things not related to me, but more on the legal front. And that's about all I can say about it. But that's what the holdup has been. So I'm going to leave that there. If I could snap my fingers and do it, we would put it in action today. As for the white t-shirt, there is a very good reason why I wear it. I have worn it for every episode of Late Kick that we have done and will continue to do so. It's not a reason that I publicize. So it's theater of the imagination. If we were doing radio, and you might as well consider this radio, back in the radio days, I always got taught about theater of the mind, theater of the imagination. And to me, what it always was fun to do is if I were to ever listen to a radio show, I would wonder what the faces of the people looked like. If you've ever found yourself doing that, if you listen to a podcast, but you've never seen the people, you always, your mind starts to picture them because you are so used to living in a world where there is a visual element to anything you're experiencing. And in the podcast and radio world, that's one of the few areas where you do not have a visual element. Well, what your mind does out of habit is it starts to paint the visual element for you. So you start to envision what a person looks like using only their voice as guidance. Well, the same tactic works here. There is a reason why I wear that white t-shirt. But if I don't give it to you, it's not the worst thing in the world. You get to fill in your own reason for it. And you get to assume you're right. And maybe some of you are, maybe some of you aren't. But there is a reason. I'm not going to share it. That's going to be part of the fun of the show is you get to decide for yourself why this white t-shirt gets worn. I will say this, Sam. I do own more than one of them. I own several more than one. But the real question you should be asking is, do I actually wear more than one? Let's grab David's here. He was supposed to be first, and I completely skipped over it. My bad, David. If I didn't tell you that, you wouldn't have known, though. So that was that was my fault. So David, in any event, asks, I came across a highlight video the other day from the 2012 Texas A&M-Alabama game, and it got me thinking, just how much of a ripple effect do you think Johnny Manziel had on the game of college football? I don't think it can be overstated, David. I really don't. I think to myself what we thought of quarterback as before and after that. And that was already in an era where the idea of what you could do at quarterback was changing a little bit because I think Cam Newton did that a little bit. I think Oregon was in the process somewhat of doing that. But then at A&M, Manziel is a guy that 90% of programs, when they recruited him, I mean, to begin with, the A&M had Manziel because other programs recruited him as a skill guy, as an athlete, as a wide receiver or a DB, they just simply did not look at that skill set and say, we want to hitch our wagon to that at quarterback. It's just too high risk. That's, there's reward, obviously, with putting an athlete that caliber there, but it's just too high risk. I used to watch Texas A&M games, and I used to listen to all the armchair quarterbacks saying, oh, shame on all these other programs for not recruiting Manziel. Texas didn't even recruit Manziel to play quarterback. Well, yeah, I wouldn't have either if I played there. This was lightning in a bottle. The bottom line is, if you put that principle in play and you were looking for Johnny Manziel's to put at quarterback, for every one of those that works out, 
you may have 10 of them who crash and burn. So is it smart practice? Again, the risk reward, it's what you're constantly weighing and recruiting when you have limited numbers of scholarships. Do you want to risk it? It's easy to watch Johnny Manziel after the fact and say, oh, he's good enough to play quarterback. Really? Can you do that when they're in high school? Because that's when you're having to make that decision. Not after they've been on campus two or three years. I guess now with the transfer portal, maybe it's a little bit different. But yes, he absolutely changed things. Because once coaching staffs saw that happening at quarterback and saw what Texas A&M could be, well, then not only did they start thinking that in recruiting, they started looking across their own rosters and saying, who do we have here right now? I can't prove this. But I think maybe that helped Blake Sims at Alabama. Since you're talking about the Bama A&M game, I think it helped Blake Sims at Alabama. Because Blake Sims came in, and he played quarterback at Gainesville High School there in Georgia. The Red Elephants, by the way, is the mascot there. He played high school football as quarterback, but a lot of these guys do. When he went to Alabama, you know where they played him? They played him at running back, safety, and wide receiver before they ever moved him back to quarterback several years in, and they finally gave him a shot. All he did was win the starting job and ended up winning the SEC championship and taking Alabama to the playoff. So I don't know that Blake Sims may not have just always won that job. I don't think it hurt him at all that there was a recent reference point for Nick Saban to look at in Johnny Menzel and what he did at Texas A&M, and it probably doubly didn't hurt Blake Sims that Nick Saban and company had gotten beaten by Johnny Menzel. And the next year, remember Saban and Bama had to play Menzel twice. They go out to College Station and they had to score like 50 points to win that game. I think it was 48 or 49 to 42 or something like that. So it was, I mean, it was a tough out both times. But yes, I think certainly it changed a lot of the perception of what quarterback can be. Whereas to that point, if you draw a line in the sand, pre and post Menzel, look at how many quarterbacks roughly off that tree By tree, I mean skill set. Look at how many quarterbacks have been given a shot post-Manziel that may never have seen the light of day taking meaningful reps at quarterback pre-Manziel. That's impact. That's having impact well above and beyond just your university and your specific three or four years there at a program. All right, we got a lot of work to do. I've got to get in the studio. We got to put Late Kick Live together today. I know a lot of you are traveling this weekend. Be very careful. Here's what I ask you to do. A lot of you are going to be around buddies. A lot of you are going to be around friends and family. You know good and well, all of you watch college football. Our show is growing leaps and bounds, and here's how it's happening. You are talking to other people about it. I can tell looking at even just the research we get. You can tell when organic growth is happening versus marketing-based growth, and ours is organic, and we got to have it continue because it ultimately opens the door to do everything we want to do. Some doors have already been opened. You're about to see some shortly, or the fruits of which you're about to see shortly. Keep telling people about the show. All you got to do is tell them it's college football and nothing else. Go find out for yourself. And then we feel confident that the product will hook them. Just got to get it in front of them, their eyes and ears. Five-star reviews are great on the podcast. We've gotten a ton of them. We're about to close in on 1600 remember just last week we were going for 1500 so please continue to do so and other than that just thanks looking very very forward to this season and it's very close i counted how many shows we have until kickoff the other day not a whole lot so hang with us and bring other people to the party until then for producer jordan i'm josh bait have yourselves a great independence day weekend and god bless you